can't ignore the need. Countless souls among the peoples of the earth who do not know about Jesus. This is the heart of mission. Missionaries, cross-cultural specialists, pastors, they can all help us answer this season's big question. What small role can I play in God's big world? Thank you for joining us. Grab a cuppa and strap in as we demystify, decode and de-stress the great challenges of cross-cultural mission. Mark Peterson here, Director of CMS South Australia and the Northern Territory. Today we're talking about a part of the world where some extraordinary things are happening. People are coming to faith in Jesus from all sorts of cultural and national backgrounds, and lots of them. And the majority of them are heading back to their homelands with a message of eternal salvation to share. Sharing our faith here in Australia, it's hard work, and I'm sure if you're in other Western locations, you find the same thing. Just for one person to come to faith can take years of conversations, sharing life together, and the gradual breaking down of objections and other blockages to faith. And I just wonder if you, like me, sometimes feel discouraged. I mean, let me ask the slightly uncomfortable question. It's a podcast, so we can do this. How many of your friends and other contacts have come to faith in the last, say, five years? Perhaps you have great stories to tell. Please contact us and share them. But I reckon a lot of us are seeing very little movement at all amongst our friends and family. What's going on? What's not working? Presumably, you're praying for them. Presumably, most of your contacts already know that you're a Christian. Hopefully, you find opportunities here and there to drop Jesus' actual name into conversations and say something positive about him. But even that can be hard, let alone calling your friend to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. I reckon the kind of answer to prayer I'm waiting for is where my friend comes to me and says, Mark, what have I got to do to be saved? But it often just doesn't happen that way. This interview with Warwick and Caroline has shown me a few things and reminded me of a few others. It's shown me that the Holy Spirit is very much at work in some parts of the world that desperately need the gospel of Jesus. People are receiving salvation. What a relief, because if the spiritual dryness we experience in the West was the only thing we had to go on, it'd be pretty sad. But I'm also reminded of the relevance of the Great Commission. It's Jesus' command to all who call themselves his disciples, not just to make more disciples, but to make disciples who make disciples. Fundamental as it is to being a disciple, for most of us, it seems a bridge too far. I'm just not an evangelist. What I need to do is find an evangelist or an evangelistic presentation of some sort and pluck up the courage to invite friends and family to come along to some event, and then it's up to the evangelist. And this is one way evangelism is happening. But Warwick and Caroline, the missionary couple I'm interviewing today, have a different approach, and it's what's playing out in their city right now. They're working in a church in the Middle East, and you're going to hear story after story of people not only coming to faith, but also receiving a salvation that they then pass on to others. You'd think they were all gifted evangelists. What's going on is so extraordinary that at one point in the interview, I asked the question, how do we bottle this? How do we bottle what's going on in your city? And now that I listen back, I'm a little embarrassed by that because the Holy Spirit is not some genie that I could 
put in a bottle. And yet he is exactly who is needed for the flourishing growth of the gospel. Because this is more than just techniques. However, what I think is really helpful to hear from Warwick and Caroline's answers is a bunch of specific ideas inspired by New Testament concepts that are being implemented in their particular church. And I wonder whether they might also be relevant for us here in Australia. However, listener beware, these guys don't hold back. Strap in for the ride, let's meet Warwick and Caroline. Well, Warwick and Caroline, it's absolutely great to have you with us on the Heart of Mission podcast. You're here on home assignment. You are based in the Middle East, and we want to find out a little bit about what has been going on there. But first of all, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks for having us. Now, tell us about a little bit about your church. How often do you baptise people at your church? Pretty much every week. It's just amazing. There are non-Christians in church every week and almost every week people are becoming believers. They don't get baptised straight away, but we're always preparing them for baptism and uh, they're always down there getting baptised at our nearby beach. Okay, so you're nearly every week, you're saying. So that means lots and lots of people. I assume they're coming to faith and this is part of what's going on in your church at the moment. Absolutely. People come to our city from all over the world And our city is full of foreign workers. And for many of them, it's the first opportunity to be away from their home culture and family. And they're open to hearing about Jesus in ways they never would be in their home country. Now, you you recently had, a, I think, an extra big baptism uh, around Easter time. Is that right? And and I guess this was kind of tied in with COVID and the fact that there'd been quite a bit of lockdown. But tell us about that story. Every Easter, we have had the habit of baptising. Sunday is often the first day of the week in our part of the world. So we used to have an early morning sunrise service. But during COVID, we even had baptisms around Easter. We just split up into groups all around our city and used people's pools. But this last year, we had, uh, coming out of COVID, we had about 45 people down at the beach on Easter Day morning getting baptised. But we saved them up for quite a few weeks because Easter Day is such a wonderful day to be baptised. That is incredible. Tell us more, what, what is the work that the Spirit is doing to bring this kind of, this kind of growth? You were sort of hinting at it a minute ago, um, Warwick, but just explore that for us, will you? One of the things I think that folk are happy to do in our city is talk to one another. And one of the things we do as a church is we want to equip every member, every disciple, with the skills and confidence to be able to just chatter away about what it means to be a follower of Jesus what he's done for us, what following Jesus looks like. We want church to be the kind of place that anybody can invite anybody to and just have a culture of constantly engaging with people around us. Okay, so there's there's a whole question of um, what it looks like to make disciples that I do want to um, look at for a little bit, but not just yet. I want to. I want to just hear a little bit more about the 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 city. It, there's a place of cultural openness, isn't there? The people come from different parts. They come from all over the world. I think we've got over 200 nations in our city, and they come because they're looking for a better life, because they want to be able to send money home to put their children through school or university or a whole stack of reasons. But God brings them to our city because he wants them to discover the truth about Jesus. And what we keep seeing is as people speak the word of God to others, 
The Word of God is incredibly powerful. They don't have to preach long sermons. They just have to have Jesus, what he's done, and the impact of the Word of God in their life on their lips and just speak it. Okay, so are you are you saying that there isn't some super-powered evangelist who is doing all these knockdown sermons and, and people are just becoming Christians because of the knockdown sermons? Like, what's Absolutely going on? Absolutely not. The preachers at our church are incredibly ordinary. You're one of them, aren't you, Warren? I am. As I said, <laughs> we're incredibly ordinary. None of us are stars. We're just punters. And the people who are doing the, the evangelism are the people. Uh, our role as pastors is to equip the saints for the work of service, the work of ministry. The work of ministry is the speaking of the Word of God in Ephesians 4 to others. And so we see our role is to equip them so that they can speak that word because it's the word of the gospel that's the power of God to save, not the, the pastor, the preacher, the whatever. And so the more people who speak the word, the more people who hear it, the word's powerfully at work. Okay, so a lot of preachers and leaders would love to see uh, the members of their churches grow in confidence in sharing the gospel and, you know, to evangelise their friends, we might call it. How is that working in your city, in your church? Can I tell them about Rosie? Yep. So Rosie uh, was joined our um, discipling groups. She's a mum. She was coming along, and one of the things we do in one of our early weeks is learn how to share our testimony in three minutes. And the idea is you have one minute to talk about your life before you met Jesus, one minute about what happened when you met Jesus, and then one minute for your life afterwards. And the idea in our groups is we practice it in the group, then we go away during the week having actually committed uh, verbally to what we're going to do, and and we were going to go and share it with a Christian. We didn't even have to share it with a non-Christian. And she came back the week after, and we have some accountability at the beginning of our groups. And when it came to her turn, we asked her how she went. She said, oh, it was terrible. We said, oh, why? Did you not manage to share it with anyone? Where did you get stuck is the question we often ask. And she said, oh, no, I shared it uh, ten times, seven times. It was seven times. I'm like, that's fantastic. Who did you share it with? And she said, well, I shared it every time with my husband. And we all laughed and said, that doesn't matter. You know, what did he think? And she said, oh, he thought it was great, but I don't think it's any good. But then we got her to share it with us. Uh, we talked with her about where she thought it wasn't great. Um, she worked on it a bit more. And then the following week with her husband, she was at a dinner with some of his colleagues and sat down with a lady and they were making small talk. And instead of doing the usual 20 questions, Rosie actually said to the lady, can I tell you my story? And she shared her testimony because it was only going to be three minutes, got straight to talking about Jesus and the difference that Jesus had made in her life. And this kind of thing, we're just continuing to teach people and really equipping them and helping them to see that they have a story that's worth telling and it's the story of what Jesus has been doing in their life. And that moment was actually a turning point for Rosie. Since then, she has not stopped talking about Jesus. Okay, so you were telling me about Jenny before. Jenny, you said she's she's working full time, but she almost is. She's sharing the gospel so much she almost can't fit in her work because she's so busy sharing the gospel. Tell us well, about Jenny. Jenny's just a punter. She works in business. Uh, she's a Filipino, and she just loves Jesus and talks about Jesus all the time. One of her friends is from Bangladesh. Uh, she's from another faith, and uh, she explained Jesus to Mariam, her friend. And over a period of time, Mariam just kept asking more and more questions. And in the end, Mariam said, I need to speak to someone about this. Jenny'd been speaking to her for months and months and months. They'd brought her to my place. I went through uh, the gospel with her and they went away to read Mark's gospel together. 
And over the next couple of months, Mariam became a follower of Jesus, and it was just a joy and a delight to baptise her. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, look, we're just going to keep, look, there's just names, names, names. Um, tell us about Terry. She's a bit older, and, and, and we just want to hear more stories. I'd love to tell you about Terry. I met her through her daughter, Erica, who was involved in an English language ESL outreach that I was running in our city. And Terry came to stay with her daughter for a few months. Terry's in her mid-70s. And while she was with her daughter, it it became apparent that Terry really was incredibly anxious about everything. And her daughter, Erica, during her time in our city, had actually come to know Jesus, having grown up being taught about God, but not really being taught about Jesus. So she had actually really had her life transformed by becoming a follower of Jesus. So she started telling her mum, Terry, that she needed to follow Jesus. That was going to be the thing that was going to help her in her life. We had had a young woman come to our our church to do an apprenticeship who was from El Salvador and spoke Spanish as well, which is the heart language of Terry and Erica. So we asked the El Salvadorian young woman if she would disciple Terry. So they met together week after week, working through what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and growing in, in growing Terry in her understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus. And in the end, Terry was baptised. And it's just been a joy and delight to hear her expressing how wonderful it is in her mid-70s to come to know Jesus and to actually have confidence and assurance that uh, she's welcome. It doesn't, it's not reliant on what she does, but it's all on what Jesus has done for her. It's been wonderful watching Terry's daughter, Erica, disciple her. It was also lovely to see Terry extend her visa for three months so she could stay in our city, not so she could spend more time with her family, but so she could be discipled before she went home to Mexico. What is it like being in a place like that where the spirit is at work like this? It's awesome. It's a privilege. Yeah. I, I tell people it's like a fairground. Everywhere you turn, there's something fun to do with gospel ministry. (laughs) It feels like everything we plant grows. I've never seen anything like it. We know that it's unusual and we're incredibly grateful that we're part of it. We've spent time in two different, a number of different churches in Australia doing all sorts of things to reach the community um, with, you know, not a lot of fruit. So it's just amazing to be able to be part of this harvest that really is the fruit of gospel workers from 50 years ago. Okay. Now, how do we bottle it? How do we, like, how do we make sense of this? The numbers, you've already said it's, you know, you've got great preachers, but not necessarily that, that's not the, necessarily the key thing that, that Spirit is using here. Tell us what, what's going on. The heart, I think, of our church is that we've been convinced by the Great Commission that each and every disciple is to make disciples. That is, Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, says to the eleven, go, or as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That that command is to make disciples the how they make disciples is explained in the baptizing and teaching. And every disciple ought to be leading others to people, other people to faith in Christ. And every disciple ought to be teaching what Jesus has commanded. And every disciple ought to be making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So one of the things that we're convinced of is that we need to equip every disciple to be able to do that. And I think Ephesians 4 tells us that we do that by equipping our people to speak. 
And so one of the questions we ask is what stops our people speaking? And one of the things that stops our people speaking is if they don't know how to do it. They won't know how to do it if they don't actually do it. They won't do it as well if they're afraid, if they're afraid that they'll mess it up, if they're afraid that they'll make things worse for those who hear, if they're, they're afraid that they'll be persecuted. So we, we attack the persecution thing straight on. And so all of our small groups start with 10 Bible studies that they work through over about three months. They spend two weeks looking at persecution because we want them to know that if you're going to speak about Jesus, you will get hammered. And, and that's just what Jesus promises. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 12, uh, everyone who wants to lead a godly life in Christ will be persecuted while evil men and imposters go from bad to worse. Jesus said, if they hated me in, Mark, in John 15, they're going to hate you. And so we want people to think differently about persecution. It's going to happen. We want people to experience sharing their faith, particularly in small groups before they leave. Our thinking is if they haven't done it before they leave their small group, they'll never do it outside the small group. Now, now, what about this whole question of speaking and feeling like you might mess it up? And, you know, the next person, you know, they might never, they might never take an interest in faith again because you, you messed it up. What do you say? Oh, look, it's really, really simple. If somebody's not a believer, they're already going to hell. You can't make it any worse for them. They can't get any more lost than they are now. The only thing that can help them is if they hear the word of life and you've got the word of life, it's on your lips, speak it. You can't make it any worse. If they reject you or reject the word that they speak, they're not rejecting anything else that they haven't already rejected. You can't mess it up. And God's the one who saves. So trust him and his word to be powerful. Now, quite a few of the cultures you're working amongst are fairly hierarchical cultures where it's difficult for members of groups to in any way be perceived to be challenging the teacher. The teacher is often seen to have a very specific role to impart knowledge. And yet you're wanting people to get talking when the members of the group are thinking, I need to keep quiet and, and hear what the teacher is saying. Matthew 28 is the key. Because when we go through Matthew 28 with people, we ask the question, how many of you think the Great Commission is for you? And when we ask the question, all the hands go up and everyone says, yes, yes, it's for me. And then we say, okay, just use Matthew 28, 16 to 20, just those five verses. You can't look anywhere else in the Scriptures. I want you to prove that this command is actually for you. And so they scratch their heads. We divide them up into pairs and they chat with each other. And in the end, they come to see the circular logic within the passage. That is, the 11 were told to go and make disciples. They were to make disciples by baptising and teaching, but teaching the disciples that they made to obey everything that Jesus commanded, the last command was to make disciples, which means the new disciples are to baptise and teach. We then ask them a diagnostic question. And this is really important for people in hierarchical cultures. We say to them, okay, you've just proved that this command is for everyone. So here's the question for you. Who baptises? And at this point, you can just watch the cogs in their heads grinding to a halt as they're horrified by the answer to the question that they've already answered but that they can't escape. And the answer is not the pastor, which is the answer that they want to give, but it's actually every disciple. And that for them is just this massive lights-on moment. And then we ask, okay, who teaches? 
And they go, oh, we all teach. You can't be a disciple and not be baptising. You can't be a disciple and not be teaching. And they've also, as we go through this, they've also said to us that, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And therefore, this is not a command that they can walk away from. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. And so we say, at that point, why aren't you? And we just pause and wait. And people feel the weight of the command. And then we say, okay, over the next 10 weeks, what we want to do is equip you to follow this command that Jesus has given. And part of our thinking is we want to help people move one small step to the right at a time. And too often as pastors, we just put guilt on people's shoulders. Too often we expect them to leap 100 metres in one step. But if we get them to move one small step every single week, they get to see their progress. They get to see their ability to speak growing and their confidence to speak growing as they do it every week. And all of a sudden, they find themselves doing things that they never thought were possible. Okay. So now you have an 80-20 rule in your small groups as well. Yep. Tell us about the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule simply says that the leaders are only allowed to speak for 20% of the time and the members have to speak for 80% of the time. What we found in most small groups is that the small group really operates as this kind of, this kind of organism where the leader arrives with a list of questions, the group members arrive and they know that their job is to guess the answers that the leader is looking for. And when the, when the leader gets the right answer from somebody in the group, he asks the next question. What we want people to do is grow in their confidence to speak the word of God to one another. And so what we do is we, instead of doing everything as a large group, when you do things as a large group, only one person gets to speak at any one time. And the education pyramid tells us that we learn most when we're involved in speaking and teaching others. So we break our small groups up into microgroups, twos and threes, and we give people exercises where they get to explore a passage for themselves without the leader interfering. So they get used to talking with each other about the word. Our thinking is the more we talk about the word with one another, the more confident we'll be, the more confident we are, the more likely we are to speak without the group setting outside the group. As I said, the other thing we do is we make sure that if we want them to say something outside the group, they've practised it and done it inside the group before they leave. Okay, so you're wanting to see people grow in maturity and maybe there's a real continuity between sharing the gospel and growing in the gospel. What are we expecting to see in people? What changes are we expecting that you're really wanting to see, especially if it's only a shorter window for this program? Part of it is we want to redefine maturity. And so one of the things we've said is that we wonder whether there are actually four possible steps towards maturity. The first step we call exploration, and we use the symbol of a question mark to, to describe it. And that's where we, we say we get people to ask the question, is this for me? The, the second stage of maturity is revelation, and we use a tick for that. Revelation is when God turns on the lights, when by his spirit, his word comes to life for us and we go, not, is this for me? But yes, this is for me. I think I used to think that maturity was when God turned on the lights and I understood everything and wanted it for myself. Mm. And then maybe you you really grow in your understanding of it, which we obviously do, but you know you understand more and more of the intricacies of it. 
But, but that, I think, breeds fat Christians. We get fatter and fatter and fatter, but not necessarily mature. So we, we actually wonder if there are two more steps towards maturity, particularly if disciples make disciples who make disciples, if multiplication is there. We, we want to take it at least another step forward to addition. Addition is where we go, is this for me? Yes, this is me, for me. Addition is where I want this for you. But we think multiplication is actually closer to maturity, which is where I want you to want this for others. And so as we allow that definition of maturity to drive where we're going, it means that we're constantly thinking, how can I not just help somebody to understand this, but understand how to share it with somebody in such a way that they can share it with somebody else? And so part of the key there is, is what I'm doing with people reproducible? Because if I can do it with them, but they can't pass it on, I've killed disciple-making stone dead. And I wonder if too many of our ministry tools don't pass the reproducibility test, which for us is it has to go to the fourth generation. I explain it to Bill, Bill explains it to Fred, Fred explains it to Louise, Louise explains it to Sarah. If it doesn't get to Sarah generation four, then it hasn't reproduced. And too many things stop well before Sarah. Now, you've also said to me that you, you really think Bible reading is, is critical in this. And isn't that, in a sense, that's part of going deeper. But tell us about Bible reading, why, why it's so important. And I, I think you mean public Bible reading, but also private Bible reading. What do you want to say? There was a massive survey done in the States. Um, over 80,000 people were interviewed. And what they discovered, and it wasn't the purpose of the survey, what they discovered is if people get into the Word four times a week or more, their walk with Jesus profoundly changes. You'd think it would be one step, then another step, then another, and it'd be a gradual increase. But what they found was once a week, almost no change. Two times a week, almost no change. Three times a week, there's a blip on the radar, but four times a week, it goes off the scale. And one of the outcomes of that was if people are reading the Bible four times a week or more, they're 200% more likely to read the Bible with a friend and share their faith with others. And so one of the things we want to do is create opportunities for people to get into the Word for themselves four times a week or more. For that to happen, they've actually got to be confident that they can read the Bible for themselves. But I think too often our preachers and our small group leaders unintentionally communicate to the, the people that they're, they're growing or trying to grow that they can't do it. They can't be the preacher. They're not good enough to be the small group leader. And so we, we kill off their confidence to read the text rather than encouraging them to do it. Sometimes this is happening, I think, because of the materials we use. So we have study questions, but often if they haven't had time to prepare, which is my experience in almost every city I've lived in, the women often come with a blank book and then they're trying to engage with the Bible text without having had any time to think about it, whereas the leader's done loads of thinking, does the classic thing of asking the question and getting the right answer and moving on, and they sit there thinking, gosh, how did they get that? I'm really stupid. And it actually discourages them from reading their Bible at home because they open the same passage and think, I can't see how they got that because no one's helping them discover how to read the Bible for themselves in a way that they can then go and do with someone else. So I've started reading the Bible with women and we just open the Bible and we read Mark together and we just work through it and work out what questions the text is 
making us ask rather than relying on the questions that some other person has decided we should ask of the text. As preachers, like I think for most of my preaching life, my goal has been to help people to understand the text. And that's a really good thing to do. But I think if Ephesians 4 is right, my job is to do more than that. I've got to go further than that. My job is to equip the saints so that they can speak that word to others. They've got to do more than understand it. They've actually got to be confident to speak the word that that's there that I might explain to other people. If I finish a sermon and they're not more confident to speak it, I've profoundly failed. I think what you've given me is a real desire to give thanks for what's happening in your city and your part of the Middle East and to keep praying that the Spirit will keep doing His great work there. But I must admit, I'm also really interested in what it looks like for us here in Australia. You guys have been involved in ministry in Australia, so you know our situation. How do we apply this here? I think one of the things that we as church leaders need to do as small group leaders need to do, is we need to shift our focus just a little. I think a lot of my ministry life has been spent trying to raise up leaders and the next generation of leaders, which I think is really important. However, I think the Great Commission, and I think Ephesians 4, drives us not to raise up leaders first and foremost, but to mature disciples, to introduce people to Jesus and then teach him at a discipling level. Because one of the things that we think about multiplication is that everybody's different and everybody will multiply by speaking the word of God differently. Some will multiply individuals. In fact, 85% of followers, the statistics say, will only ever multiply individuals. 15, 10 to 15% will multiply groups a smaller percentage again will multiply ministries and an even smaller percentage will multiply movements. But too much of my ministry has been focused on people who can multiply groups and ministries and not focused on the average disciple who ought to be growing and making disciples. So as a preacher, I think I need to shift my focus so that not only do people understand the word, but they have confidence to speak it to others. And in small groups, exactly the same thing. So one of the questions that we get our small group leaders or small group uh, members to answer before they leave is, who can I tell and what should I do? And every week we get our people to commit to speaking something of what they've learned that week in the small group with a group of people outside the group and praying for opportunities to do it. Now, those people can be Christians, they can be non-Christians, they can be Calathumpians, they can be anything. But we practice having those conversations before they leave. Because if you haven't done it before you leave, you'll never do it outside the group. Do you see a um, uh, in patterns at work between men and women in this and how men do it and how women do it? Because I, I think in Australia, a lot of the men struggle in this area. Warwick does a lot of work with mixed groups, so he can answer to that. I primarily work with women. In my experience, there's been a lot of resistance in our context because I think a lot of us are kind of fundamentally lazy and we just want to turn up at church or at small group and kind of listen and not really have to work. So we don't like it when we realise we actually need to put in some effort. I've had most fruit with uh, really keen Christians or new believers who haven't kind of got set in bad ways. 
I think women are great talkers. So when women really grasp the vision and, and catch the concept, uh, they often have a lot more opportunity if they have a more flexible kind of weekday life. But I don't know that it's as it's such a clear divide between the genders. Warwick can speak because he has most of the groups he works with are mixed. Look, I, I don't think it's a gender thing. I think it's a confidence and fear thing. I think what stops men from doing things is when they feel like they don't know how to do it or they're going to fail at it or be bad at it. And I don't blame them. I hate doing things badly and I hate failing at things, which is why if our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, we've got to do more than just tell them to go and do it. We've actually got to show them how to do it. Our small groups are highly experiential. Thinking is if you've experienced it before you leave, you'll be able to do it outside. Removing the roadblocks which are, I'm going to mess it up, I'm going to make things worse, I won't know what to say, I'll be persecuted. Remove the roadblocks and all of a sudden it's easier. Help people to take one small step and succeed at the one small step and then take another small step the next week and another one the week after and all of a sudden they're really growing. I think we've got to get inside people's heads and go, what's stopping you? How do I help you? rather than dumping guilt on their shoulders. We've got to think about our pedagogy. I don't think we think about how we do adult education very much. Most of us are operating with educational paradigms that haven't been used in any educational institution since the 70s. And we think that's okay. I think it's terrible. Just go into a a grade six primary school classroom and they'll never use most of the educational techniques we use in Christian ministry. Go to any adult education seminar on how to do it really well. It doesn't look anything like us. We have the best message in the world and the worst educational practices. We've certainly put some challenges out there, Warwick and Caroline. Thank you for that. Uh, You're heading back to the Middle East. Um, What are you looking forward to? First of all, just reflect on, you know, it's dry and barren and and dusty and, you know, not very nice, isn't it? It's gorgeous. I'm looking forward (laughs) to getting back to the turtles and the stingrays and the fish that I swim with as I ocean swim two or three times a week. Wow. And we love the way that God helps us to see the beauty wherever we end up living. So we've lived in different cities in Australia and where we live now is no different. Lots of people think it's barren and dry. It certainly isn't that way relationally. Um, but all of the land that the Lord's created is beautiful. So uh, we love the mountain range that's there in our city, even though there aren't any in our, in our country, there aren't any trees on it. It's not lush and green. Um, we love the ocean. The ocean is such a gift to us from God and the sound of it and living near to the ocean. But I think most of all, we love the privilege of being there and seeing the gospel fruit and the opportunities that we have in our church um, to help people make a difference. Yeah, lots of parts of our city are not particularly real, uh, but the people are mm. and the mm. people need Jesus and watching the Word of God transform people again and again and again and knowing that it's not us, knowing that it's not anybody. We've got a a, a Filipino maid in our congregation uh, and uh, her name's Jill and, and she just keeps sharing the gospel with Filipino maids and she's led scores of women to Christ just by chatting with them about Jesus and telling them they really need to repent and these women go, yeah, I, I really do. It's, it's just <laughs> awesome. 
Well, Warwick and Caroline, thank you. It's been uh, fabulous catching up with you. Fabulous hearing your reflections and uh, very, very challenging in some ways. You know, there's a lot to think about in terms of global mission and, uh, you know, strategy in inverted commas, but there's just a lot to think about in terms of just our regular ministry, isn't there? Our small groups, our church groups, uh, what it is to share the faith, where the, where the end point of that is, or um, is there some kind of dynamic that's meant to be at work in the church for the ongoing explosion of Christian faith? Um, let's keep praying that we see that and let's, let's submit our own practices to God in prayer and ask him to, yeah, to help us to think about ways that we could do this better. Can I just add one thing? One of the things that struck us being back in Australia, and we've seen it in Sydney, we've seen it in Canberra, we've seen it here in Adelaide, is that the difference between folk here and in our city is that people in our city are happy to speak, whereas people in Australia, believers in Australia, seem to think that they can't, that they're not allowed to, that they shouldn't. There's a dramatic... it, It just feels like people feel like they're not allowed to. Brothers and sisters, we've been commanded, we must speak. The Great Commission is, we must do this. It's not an option. You can't mess it up. Just get on with it and do it. And if you're a pastor, get out there and equip your people to do it. Thanks for being with us, Warwick and Caroline. Thank you. Thanks. Small groups, ordinary Christians, speaking of Christ to each other in practice for speaking of him to others. Small group leaders not feeling they have to come up with all the cleverest questions and the most eloquent answers, but instead regularly urging their members to read the scriptures for themselves and open their own mouths and speak. The Holy Spirit isn't absent here in Australia. When Christians speak Jesus' name and put it all out there, the Spirit goes to work. He's not a magical genie. He's the power behind the church's witness. But I guess we have to step out and actually witness to Jesus, say his name. What was it for you that stuck out from this interview with Warwick and Caroline? Maybe you're on the edge of your chair thinking you want to go to their city and see what God is doing. Maybe you want to be part of this. Or maybe your focus is now set on your own home group, using that context to grow disciple-making disciples. Please commit these things to God in prayer. Next episode, the final one in season two of the Heart of Mission podcast, we are talking to the International Director. Sounds like an impressive job title. Yes, we're meeting Peter Rogers, who in a very short time will be finishing up in this role as head of CMS Australia. This guy has so much mission knowledge. It was just a pleasure to sit with him for half an hour and let him talk. And after 10 years or so in this role, Peter has quite a few stamps in his passport. It was funny hearing him relay one story about an immigration officer who decided to turn literally every page in his passport looking for a place to stamp it. In the meantime, to find out more about CMS and opportunities that might be there for you, search us on the web to find your local branch and local social media channels. And have you ever been to one of CMS's summer conferences? They happen all around the country in summer, not far off now. Check your local branch for info. CMS works with churches to set apart, equip and support long-term workers who cross cultures to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For a world that knows Jesus, see you next time.